Welcome to Pulp, the bi-weekly breakout bonanza that will really boil your tea. We want to apologize for the gum up with the release episodes. Remember we mentioned something about Antarctic mutant yetis? Well, one of them got loose and got tangled up in the tapes. Anyway, we got the tape untangled and the mutant yeti all calmed down. Gave them mango and everything. They love mangoes. Speaking of mummies, we've got quite the show for you today. Our first story is our introduction to the great space pirate O'Malley. It's where she gets her start. Don't worry if she doesn't show up right away, most of the action gets started in the middle. But she's there, we promise. So grab some popcorn, popcorn chicken, veggie popcorn chicken, or popcorn whatever your heart desires and sit back and enjoy the show. The Captain's Test Deep in the Milesian Quadrant, hidden in the electromagnetic waves of an unusually active nebula with billowing gas clouds, there sits a pirate battle frigate, the Morgan by name. Now there would be many reasons for a pirate battle frigate in the deep reaches of space to be hiding in a nebula, but this one, on today of all days, had a very special reason. Today was the day of the Tiongo, the great contest where every year any crew member may challenge the right of captainship by entering, along with the current captain, in a boxing tournament. You see, each ship in the Gallo-Glass Syndicate of Space Pirates has their own charter that dictates the qualities most desired in a captain. Some hope for an aggressive leader that will attack any rich ship to carry off as many treasures as possible. Others hope for a more ideological captain that will seek the ships of the Free Republic of Usonia and leave them an empty hull floating in space. Others, like the crew of the Morrigan, just want to survive as long as possible. Space is treacherous and deadly and few can call it home for long, even in a sturdy ship. Each charter arranges different tests to draw out the desired qualities in a captain. Some might arrange a contest of puzzles to ensure their captain was adept at strategy. Others might arrange a test of willpower, such as sitting in a freezing tank for as long as possible. Some, or so I have heard, leave the candidates in a field of asteroids, and the first one to make it back to the ship retains the position of captain. The others are lost. The crew of the Morrigan had chosen boxing, a test of willpower, fortitude, strategy, all in one contest. For the test in question, after having found the ideal shelter, they automated as many of the ship's functions as possible, to allow as many of the crew as possible to be able to attend the tunnel. The system managers had limited the power to the main cargo bay where the arena had been erected, and the challenge would take place. The ship itself, hidden in the nebula, was a shadow on any of the scanners of passing ships. If it were a sailing ship like the pirates of old, 
It would have been at anchor, surrounded by a deep fog for miles on end. These events were usually full of excitement. But today, a low hum of a murmur remained in the crowd, even in ostensible silence, like a simmering teapot that at any time might erupt. There was good reason for this. The larger Gallo-Glass syndicate with her various captains vying for power had been embroiled with factional infighting for the last three years. Political turmoil in the Free Republic of Usonia had been brewing in that particular quadrant, and the various factions of Gallo-Glass had, rather than capitalizing on the divisions of their enemy, fractured into their own factions. The current captain, Driscoll, had come to her captainship under duress. The syndicate in disarray and the crew of the Morrigan starting to look the same, she ascended in strength, defeating a Captain O'Neill who cheated in the challenges, as she was desperate to retain power. The crew then rallied behind Driscoll as she led the ship to victory time and time again against the ships of the Free Republic. With Driscoll in command, the Morrigan defeated a Republic cruiser, outmatched and outgunned, and she left the ship rubble sinking into a gas giant. She outmaneuvered one of the Usonian militia's fleet of torpedo skiffs known for their speed. She rescued a town from the clutches of the Blue Hundreds. After the townsfolk had their village destroyed by those merciless thugs, they joined the previously dwindling crew of the Morrigan. However, after gaining the loyalty of the Morrigan's crew, Driscoll began to amass power for herself. She took personal gripes with other captains in the syndicate. At first, this was dismissed by many of her loyal followers as a small price to pay for her successes. A few of them, however, brought their concerns to her in a delegation. She listened to them when they approached her on the bridge and did her best to make them feel heard. This was a normal process on these ships. Since the captain was chosen by a series of tests, they were always held accountable by delegations of the crew if they veered off course of what a captain should be. The power is always protective of its own interests. The next day, they were all demoted from commanding positions if they were officers, or given grueling tasks if they were of the lower rank. Then she began making daily speeches on the intercom, with thinly-veiled pontifications about loyalty and further elaborations of her sectarian ideologies. She used all the resources at her disposal to disparage other captains who considered to be less than pure gallo-glass. Another delegation was sent, this time led by one Saev O'Malley, the delegation brought up how they thought embroiling the Morrigan into petty squabbles would only hurt their chances out in space. They brought up how they were becoming detached from the Syndicate, and how the broadcasts were not only distancing them from other ships, but only contributing to the disunity of the clan itself, and diverting precious resources from the ship and her survival. Fortunately for Driscoll, and unfortunate to the delegation, the Morgan was in that moment caught unawares by two Free Republic corvettes. Normally, the frigate would be armed with heavy weaponry, as it takes quite a while to change armaments. And if a frigate is going toe-to-toe -to -toe with a battleship, 
the time to change armaments would mean almost certain death. However, out of pure luck, since she had recently demoted the armaments officer who would have ensured that the guns were armed with the right ammunition, the ship was instead armed with the agile Kern missiles that would fire in a cluster and keep the agile corvettes from escaping. Most corvettes bank their successes on being able to outmaneuver the shots of heavy armament gunners and depend on the ships being armed for heavy combat. But this time, Driscoll was able to maneuver the Morgan between the corvettes and order the Kern missiles fired. The frigate was prepared and fired both broadsides from their massive heavy turrets. The Kern missiles scattered and streaked across the chasm between ships in bending and crisscrossing patterns, creating a wall of irregular shots where an agile ship had nowhere to go. Both corvettes were hit with a full broadside and disabled, shocked that a lone frigate would be prepared for this type of engagement. Driscoll then ordered the Morrigan to switch armaments to heavy shot and blew the corvettes to dust. To most of the crew, this was a feat of pure genius and strategy. They saw it as a miracle. A frigate against two corvettes coming out without a scratch was unheard of. Driscoll was not about to let this go without turning it to her profit. She halted the ship and forbade the salvage of the destroyed corvettes, which the crew was anxious which the crew was anxious to strip for resources. She took to the intercom of the ship to denounce the delegation as traitors. They stood in the way of such fantastic victories and should be punished as such. She made a sham trial, convened immediately under the mutiny clause of the Charter, making the case that they had obstructed the well-being and success of military action by making traitorous delegation. The sham trial, of course found them all guilty. She then ordered the salvage of the ruined corvettes, asking specifically for two spacesuits of the enemy. She didn't care about supplies, food, or materials. She then ordered the dissenting delegates to don the suits and ordered the navigators to set course for the nearest asteroid cluster. When they arrived... She ordered the delegates to be fastened prostrate to an asteroid and left them, waiting to be crushed as the rocks eventually and inevitably collided with each other. They say the madness of empty space overtakes your mind before the rocks crush your body. A systems officer, O'Malley by name, held back tearful sobs as she watched from the window bay of the large forward turret as one of the dissenters, her sister, was being strapped to the rock. Anyone with eyes could see the captain's ship had been tainted. It was now used for personal gain, to further the cult and power of one woman. When the captain's ship becomes a preservation of power, that power will move to crush anyone showing sympathy for the punishment of loyal dissent. It would mean survival for systems technician O'Malley, she could manage not to show her grief. After the execution, the crew was then divided between those keeping quiet long enough for the tunnel to take place, or those true believers who blindly followed Driscoll. It was difficult to say how many dissenters there were. Some that whispered in shadows debated the need to speak out or quietly go along with it. Meanwhile, Driscoll 
was becoming even more and more hungry for power. She even began to attempt to rewrite the bylaws of the Charter, doing so by ensuring the committee needed to ratify the changes were all her most loyal officers. Three officers used the open crew seat on the committee, a place where anyone can sit and speak on the matter, to speak against the changes. They said the power of captainship was in service to the crew, and that this was in service to herself. These dissenters she threw in the brig indefinitely. Some among the crew began to suspect that she was aware of the growing restlessness, and she knew that if she orchestrated another sham trial and execution, she would only be adding fuel to the fire. After this, Driscoll would take to the intercom every morning to talk at length about the need for loyalty, the need to be of one mind, the need for unity, and how those that would criticize her were in the way of what she was doing for the ship and for the pirate clan. The closer the time for the Tionel grew near, it seemed like everyone on the ship was becoming aware that if she won the challenge, the ship would be her personal vehicle of vengeance, without a single care for the crew. Those that advocated full-throated opposition were vindicated when Driscoll made the case in one of the morning briefings that, since there was no real opposition to her, the Tionel should be cancelled. One wise gunnery officer, Connolly, wrote a crafty letter, saying that if she held the Tionel, it would silence any future dissenters to see her in all her strength defeat her enemies. Besides, she would want to know who would step forward to take her place. True to form, she relented, and the next day she said that she would graciously allow the Tionel to continue. So here, on the day of the challenge... The crew had erected a sort of stadium out of cargo and supply crates, and a boxing ring had been constructed in the center. A somewhat shorter man with wavy, sandy, blonde hair, and wore a jacket slightly too small. One of Driscoll's true believers rose to initiate the ceremony. He pulled at the microphone that had been connected in an ad hoc fashion through the ceiling and dropped to the small announcer's area in the corner of the large cargo hold and announced the beginning of the challenge. You are all here for the Great Tionel, where we will see Captain Driscoll, who has led us in victory time and time again, meet all who would challenge her fitness for command. As he spoke, the crowd became more and more lively. One could not make out what the crowd was saying, or whether it was celebration, frustration, or a combination of all of the above, melding together in a cacophony of rage. The captain will now take all challengers, he roared, that the few who dare step forward and make yourselves known. The last bit was as much of a threat as it was a direction, and everyone knew it. They knew that if they challenged her and lost, their last home would be the outside of an asteroid. The first challenger stepped forward cautiously, like an ant walking up to face a bulldog. He was thin, quiet, cautious man with a red beard, almost long enough to curl. He looked like he would have a hard time going toe-to-toe with the others in a boxing match, although it might have been news to him. Cautious or not, he looked like he couldn't wait to get started. He walked up to the platform and took the microphone from the first mate. I am Gunnery Officer Connolly, and I challenge the captain. He laid his gunnery jacket aside, leaving his buttoned officer's shirt. 
the second challenger stepped forward. A marine named McCarthy, with the frame of a crate. The crowd hushed for a second when she stepped forward. She had been a vocal supporter of Driscoll, and was known to floor her fellow marines with a single punch if they so much as breathed dissent. So why would she challenge the captain? And if no one said it, it was on the minds of many that she was a plant to make sure that either Driscoll won or a loyalist like her would. The crowd started to boo as she took the mic and announced her challenge. Then the last challenger stepped forward. A woman with short, a woman with short, reddish-black hair and a streak of scars on her left cheek. She had already shed her jacket and was wearing only her sweat-stained tank top. She wasn't waiting for the prompt, but was already wrapping her hands with boxer's tape as she walked up to the first mate. I am Systems Technician O'Malley, and I challenge the captainship of Driscoll on grounds that she is unfit for command as dictated by the Morgan Charter. The crowd erupted in noise again with a muddled mixture of boos and cheers. First mate Foley took the microphone again with a petulant jerk of his arm. I guess we'll see about that, he said with a sharp glance in her direction. Challengers, take your positions. He began reading directly from the charter. For those of you not familiar with the art of pugilism, this is a test of martial prowess, strategy, and mental endurance. The order is determined by straws. The officer of ceremony will hold all straws, each pair having similar length. Those who pull similar lengths will be the first to face each other. Connolly, being the first challenger, stepped forward to pick his straw first. He drew a long straw and stepped back in line with the other challengers. McCarthy stepped up next and paused. A close observer would have seen Foley give a slight nod to the left with his eyes, indicating which straw to choose. She chose a short straw and returned to her place in line. Foley then announced Captain Driscoll as the next to choose. Irregular as it may have been, as the incumbent captain was traditionally last, however, as officer of ceremony, it was his prerogative to dictate. She stepped forward and was given a similar nod as McCarthy, indicating which straw to pick. This time O'Malley noticed and shot Connolly a glance. If it was luck, then Driscoll was one lucky captain being paired with the least threatening contestant from the start. Foley rose to proudly announce the lineup. The first round will be Captain Driscoll against Gunnery Officer Connolly. And then leaned over to Connolly as he walked by, whispering out of reach of the mic. Good luck, mutineer. Connolly turned back and met Foley's eyes with a stern glance. We'll see who's a mutineer he said, not bothering to quiet himself for the mic. The microphone must have picked up at least a little, because the din of the crowd had hushed to hear what was being said, and then immediately erupted again. Lines were drawn in the crowd as it became apparent who was a true believer of Driscoll and who wanted her gone. It seemed at any moment that a civil war might erupt in the audience. Connolly stepped to the side of the ring and wrapped his arms in boxing tape, and the two contestants entered the ring with matched conviction and fortitude. Driscoll walked up to Connolly like he was prey, ready to be dressed and devoured. If Connolly was intimidated, which he should have been, he had no way of showing it. It almost seemed as if somebody should have told him he was outmatched. 
The two pressed their gloves together and waited for the bell. Ready? Steady? Over and at him, Fully announced and struck the bell. As if it were previously choreographed, Fully cut short the last command, and Driscoll, anticipating it, cut loose a powerful, sharp right hook into the side of Connolly's head. He staggered back, parrying as many of the blows as he could, but he was drowning in punch after jab from Driscoll and already off his balance. It wasn't long before she had him on the ropes, pummeling him mercilessly. The gunnery crews began to start considering amongst themselves who should succeed him as officer. Driscoll hauled back to give him a knockout blow, but to everyone's surprise, the small man was still in the fight. He ducked under her right arm as she wound up the punch and deftly shuffled around her, giving her a quick and pointed jab to the ribs with his left. As he continued to shuffle, gave her a hook to the jaw with his right as her limb was extended in the power punch that he had evaded. His streak was short-lived, though, as Driscoll used her extended arm to give him a full elbow to the chin, followed up with a deadly backhand to the temple. Both moves were illegal, but none were called, as Foley, again, was the one with the responsibility to call fouls. It was clear that the whole of the fight was rigged in Driscoll's favor from the choosing of the order. Connolly was in bad shape, and Driscoll wasn't letting up. He was still reeling from the two direct hits, and he was barely able to prop himself up on his own feet. He did his best to throw a few blows, but they were about as useful as arrows made of straw. Driscoll still had him, and there was no way out. She just waited for him to throw a sloppy punch and lay one in his head until he dropped in the floor. Fully counted to ten as fast as he could, and Connolly was still rolling to get up by the time the bell chimed. Your next challengers, O'Malley versus McCarthy, Foley bellowed, and the deckhands carried Connolly off to the med corner set up behind Foley's makeshift announcer's booth. McCarthy entered the ring with a swagger that was unanswered by O'Malley, who made her own entrance as if she had better things to do than to fight a meathead lapdog. They touched gloves at the center and waited for Foley to give the order. McCarthy must have been expecting the same consideration as Driscoll, anticipating the rushed order of the count. Foley didn't give her the same accommodation, and she ended up throwing an early punch. It didn't matter, though. Foley didn't call the foul anyway. O'Malley was outmatched, same as Connolly had been. McCarthy was stronger and could take more of a punch than O'Malley. She was quick, too, throwing punches like clockwork, keeping her shots close and precise. O'Malley blocked like a champ and threw what little shots she had opportunity for, wasting none of her energy that she didn't have, but still had to move the most to bob and weave away from McCarthy's hurricane of punches. She did her best to stand her ground, but McCarthy kept backing her into corners until the technician waited for a strong and overconfident right hook from her opponent. O'Malley then seized the opportunity and switched her stance to southpaw, started pummeling McCarthy from her head to her ribs. McCarthy was taken aback and kept staggering, unable to find her footing. It didn't take long to find herself on the ropes for once, and O'Malley kept up the barrage. Anyone that knew O'Malley, which wasn't many since she tended to keep to herself, knew she was a lefty. She played righty to wear out McCarthy and used the opportunity of the surprise. McCarthy, cornered and worn out, made one last move. The only one she needed. She took one of O'Malley's left jabs and wrapped her arm around it, lifting it from the elbow until she heard a crack. O'Malley let out a yell and the crew let out an uproar. This was more than just illegal. It was damn dirty. 
She staggered back and McCarthy relaxed her stance a bit, anticipating her opponent to yield. Whether it was broken or strained or injured in some other way was unclear. What was clear was that O'Malley was broken beyond hope. Foley, instead of calling the foul, attempted to call off the fight. Look there, folks! That seems to be a final blow to O'Malley. Let's move on to the next duel. But O'Malley might as well not have heard him. She rushed at McCarthy with renewed vigor, catching her again off guard. She landed a hard jab to the face that knocked her back even more. Then O'Malley kept on, her injured arm hanging limply to her side, and her right in perfect form with her footwork, landing hard jab after hard jab like a jackhammer until McCarthy was on the floor. Foley counted slowly as he could manage, and as he counted, O'Malley knelt down to McCarthy and spoke so only she could hear. You better stay down, lapdog, or I swear you won't get up again, arm or no arm. Foley finished counting and the deckhands carried McCarthy off, while O'Malley, lightheaded and seeing stars, made her way past the medical corner. Sitting down would only bring her pain. She needed to stay upright and make sure the adrenaline wouldn't leave her veins. She still had one fight left, and she was down one arm. As she leaned against the corner, she heard a familiar voice cut through the din of the crowd. She turned and saw Connolly, mess that he was, barely standing with both eyes swollen. Put this on your arm, he said, holding out a pad. What's that? O'Malley replied, doing her best to keep on her feet. It's not magic, but it'll keep the pain away. O'Malley took it quickly afraid Connolly might drop to the floor like a wet towel, and rewrapped her arm with the patch underneath. Go find a cot, will you? she said, and made her way back to the center where Driscoll was similarly emerging from whatever dark corner she had slithered off to. O'Malley tried to lift the ropes with her left, and moving that arm was still too painful. The small moment that it took to try was enough to be noticed by Driscoll, who smiled like a wolf who just trapped a wounded rabbit. Driscoll and O'Malley touched gloves at the center. O'Malley, barely able to hold her left arm high enough to touch the gloves with the captain. Foley counted as fast as he could, but there's no fast way to say over and at him, and O'Malley knew his game. She feigned with her left shoulder and jabbed with her right. Driscoll fell for it, instinctively bracing and blocking for a swing from the left, and took the swing to the face head on. O'Malley followed it up with a quick swing, which Driscoll took again. She tried to follow it up with a jab, but Driscoll had recovered and began blocking. Now it was a different game. The patch was working, and she could hold up her left, but it was nothing more than appearances. It might as well have been tied behind her back. Driscoll was bouncing back, and she was out for blood. She started with a swing from the right, which O'Malley blocked easy enough, followed by a hard left that O'Malley had to block with her elbow. Driscoll then let out a merciless barrage of ceaseless blows. O'Malley kept blocking, but there was no way out. She had no real use of her left arm, and her right was taking so many blows that if she ever got a chance to return a shot, it would be next to nothing after being a punching bag. She had made it to this round when she shouldn't have, but there was no way out. Driscoll, it seemed, was thrown into a rage. If she wasn't in her ring, she might have gone right past O'Malley and punched a hole in the ship. The challenger knew she had to do something, and fast. First, she shifted her footwork to be more open, 
more easily adaptable, while still blocking with one arm. Then, she pulled back enough to bring Driscoll forward. The second Driscoll followed her, she made her move. O'Malley used what little she had in her left arm to block as she pivoted right. Even with the patch, she felt like she was being broken in half. She let out a deep, feral yell that near silenced the crowd, and took Driscoll aback. Her eyes widened. O'Malley, now on Driscoll's flank, threw the hardest right hook she could, and landed it perfectly. Driscoll dropped like a rock. Foley counted slowly, and probably gave Driscoll an extra five long seconds. When she was up, she was still shaking it off. Ready? Foley warned. O'Malley did her best to funnel her searing pain into rage. Steady, Foley continued. Driscoll was still coming too, swaying from side to side. Or an atom, Foley yelled, and O'Malley used what little strength she had to swat away Driscoll's punch-drunk swing and moved in closer with tight jab after tight jab, like a crazed angel of vengeance, until Driscoll fell back down and didn't make it back up. She was just rolling from side to side. Foley, for once, counted in real time. When he finished counting, a bandaged and swollen Connolly seized the mic from Foley and addressed the crowd. This challenger won with a game rigged against her from the straws, with a game rigged against us all. Who can lead us through our predators? Who is your captain? The crowd then erupted with cries of O'Malley, until they all called in unison. Connolly returned the mic to Foley. How'd you know about the straws? Foley asked in a defeated tone. I didn't, but I knew you, and I knew O'Neill before you. Power that serves power will always cheat. O'Malley then fulfilled the last ritual in the Tione. She walked past her battleground, down the halls, and seated herself in the captain's chair on the bridge. Driscoll, having come to, was ushered in and set before her captain. O'Malley spoke to Driscoll, quoting the charter. A mark of a gallo-glass pirate of the Morgan shall be even-tempered, gracious, and ruthless to their enemies. The last line Driscoll's face sunk. She knew the fate of an enemy of the Galaguars. While that fate varied from ship to ship, it was never one of longevity. You are not my enemy, Captain, O'Malley said. You are my crew, and I would love nothing more than to strap you to the asteroid next to my sister and let her crushed body be the last thing you see. But then I would cease to have the qualities befitting a captain of this ship. Driscoll's face was still low. Whether it was one of shame or defeat, no one knew. I will assign you medbay duty. You have torn this ship apart for a year, and now your duty will be to heal it. Do you accept this assignment? Driscoll nodded penitently. I accept this assignment, she said. To your post, O'Malley replied, and walked to the bridge to be tended by medics. This 
was to be a new era for the Morrigan. How about it? Are you fascinated? Are you intrigued? Who is the Republic of Usonia? Why is it that the pirates have such a grievous grudge against them? What are the other pirate syndicates like? Why is this particular syndicate so embattled? Well, become a patron at Patreon and all will be revealed in due time with access to exclusive stories. Maybe a certain space wolf will show up. Who knows? Next up, we have another entry from Tales of Mystery and Macabre. That's three in two episodes. We're going to spread them out a bit from here on out, but we at the editorial board love our tales of mystery and macabre, so we wanted to put our best crow's feet forward. Anyway, that's enough of that. On with the show. Let the wonderment unfold. Kashta's Revenge. London, 1893. All the great capital of the British Empire had been abuzz with was speculation of what Lord Fitzgibbon had brought back with him from his archaeological dig in Egypt. Rumors multiplied like insects of what might be on display in the unveiling at the Museum of Archaeology, where he planned to exhibit all his findings and their ancient glory. The headlines plastered on the front of every newspaper seemed to speak of nothing else. Indeed, it seemed difficult to find even a shred of regular news, since the rest of the papers were filled with updates on what roads would be blocked off, which police precincts were pulling beat cops onto the streets working overtime, or the daring exploits surrounding the discovery of these artifacts. The mania became madness when Lord Fitzgibbon announced an exhibition where he would present his most impressive find, the mummy of an unknown and ancient Egyptian king, and that it would be on display in the great auditorium of the Museum of British Exploration. The cobblestones of the old city that never seemed to fully dry were more than unusually wet and slippery. Many walked across them as they would a lake frozen over, paying extra care to avoid slipping and landing face or back down on the streets. As the crowds lined up in front of the museum, an old beggar woman, dressed in rags and smelling of human excrement, wailed without ceasing. The treasure is cursed. The treasure is cursed. Nothing you bring on these shores comes alone. All will bring their curses upon you. Before long, the police arrived, stuffed her in a wagon, and carted her off before any more of the finely dressed patrons of the event arrived. The disturbance seemed to have little effect on the crowd, whose conversations quickly changed from those of disgust at the old woman to gossip and rumors about the customs of the ancient Egyptians and what fine and prestigious guests were rumored to be in attendance. Inside the museum, 
The patrons shuffled past the exhibits of jewels, statues of Egyptian deities, busts of pharaohs and other such curiosities of the ancient world, all in a hurry to reach the auditorium. There happened to be another rumor. Since Lord Fitzgibbon was an avid spiritualist, the rumor was he brought a practitioner of that art to perform a seance and speak with the spirit of whomever the mummy had been in life. The crowd, desperate to get a glimpse of the curiosity or any confirmation of the rumors, pressed up against each other in the most undignified manner. The masses had gathered... The masses had already gathered in the auditorium in the main exhibition hall, and every space was filled. Any proper Londoner would have vehemently denied that anyone was sitting on anyone's lap, but any casual observer present would certainly have sworn that the seats had doubled their capacity. A rectangular stand had been erected at the center of the stage, covered by a deep red cloth with golden fringe and tassels. Upon the stand had been placed the sarcophagus of the great king of the Nile, Hieroglyphics covered the sarcophagus from head to toe, some barely visible and faded, others brightly colored, others brightly co- others a kaleidoscope of bright colors. The aristocrat adventurer was waiting for the room to fill and the crowd to quiet down. He stood behind the sarcophagus, dressed in a beige archaeologist's attire, with a dull knife at his belt that seemed more decorative than functional. As much as he presented himself as a thrill-seeking adventurer, he had never needed to use the knife. That's what he hired his companions for. He stood with a nervous energy, hidden by Victorian stoicism, while the rumored spiritualist he had consulted stood behind him with a smile like a young university student, who thinks they know something everyone else does not, but which is actually common knowledge. "'A most cordial thanks to all present,' Lord Fitzgibbon began his address." During my time in Egypt, in the wretched heat, I comforted myself, knowing that it was for the glory of the Empire. He paused as approving grunts of, Yeah, yeah, and yes, quite, could be heard from the crowd. As a child, I saw the great monuments like Trafalgar Square, just two blocks from here, and the fearlessness of the great British Empire that it represented. I was captivated by the statues of Sir Walter Raleigh and Sir Francis Drake, the progenitors of our greatness. I knew that I, too, was driven to such greatness for the sake of our people. His speech was interrupted by a strange sound like the creaking of a door. Not loud enough to be a proper interruption, but not quiet enough to be ignored. Well, it seems even new buildings will complain every now and then, the Lord said with a chuckle. Now, as I was saying, I had braved the ghastly corridors deep within the Valley of Kings when I saw this chap. I, it was at this moment that his speech was interrupted again. Costa! A raspy and throated voice called. The crowds shifted and mounded together like a school of fish in an overcrowded aquarium. Lord Fitzgibbon attempted once more to quiet the crowd and parry the interruption. We are all students and lovers of sciences here. There is no need to interrupt. Everyone will have their chance to ask their pertinent questions. But the school of fish were already disturbed. The spiritualist, behind him, seeing the opportunity to demonstrate his expertise, sprang to the defense of the gentleman archaeologist. 
Now, now, there is no need to excite yourselves. The spirits of the dead are ever eager to communicate. Calm yourselves, this is to be expected. He concluded with a self-satisfied smirk and receded to his place behind the Lord. Despite the efforts of the two of them, the crowd was still restlessly moving about, and Fitzgibbon attempted once more to address the onlookers. It was in the depths of that ancient and mysterious place that I found the realization of my life's work. I had finally conquered what no Englishman had been fit to do. I had... Again, the raspy voice called from an unknown place in the great hall. Feast! Where before it seemed firm yet lethargic, now the voice sounded angry and determined. The buzz from the crowd had erupted again, this time not to be quieted, for as Fitzgibbon attempted to calm them with some sort of claptrap about the tricks your imagination plays on you in the presence of such exotic artifacts, the sarcophagus behind him began to creak open. Those in the crowd began to gasp, while the spiritualist could scarcely contain his excitement. The voice emerged again. Thieves and desecrators! And a hand emerged from the opening in the sarcophagus, wrapped in bandages, except for the fingertips which were a sickly green. Now there was no containing the crowds. Some made a break for the exit, the others remained in curious and captivated terror. Fitzgibbon was taken aback in shock and reached for the knife on his belt. The lid of the sarcophagus was then flung open, and the ancient king was seen for the first time in almost 3,000 years. But now he was covered in rough bandages, with the exception of a few openings revealing the same green, rotten flesh as was on his hands. The spiritualist had stepped forward with almost childlike enthusiasm. "'Great king, can you speak to us of the great beyond?' he asked like a child, asking if he could have candy later. The king responded by grabbing him by the throat and squeezing until there was nothing left for his bandaged fingers to squeeze and dropped the body on the floor." By the time the spiritualist's body landed like a bag of luggage, the crowd that remained had begun to panic. In an instant, the hall was filled with wild shrieks, which soon gave way to the sound of a stampede of a thousand feet. If anyone had turned around, they would have seen a grisly sight indeed. The ancient king had the gentleman adventurer cornered. I'll take you back. I'll fill your tomb with treasures, he begged. It is too late, the king replied and reached for the cornered lord, who quickly brandished his knife and plunged it into the dead king's chest. Fool, the king said as he pulled the knife out of his own chest and plunged it into the aristocrats. Die without honor, he spoke and left the adventurer to his death. He slowly made his way out of the auditorium and into the streets, where the Scotland Yard volunteers were ready with their billy clubs. The few that carried revolvers opened fire on the ancient king, who in turn, who in turn, pulled a metal handrail and returned metal for metal, plunging it into the hearts of the policemen. The rest saw the writing on the wall and turned and ran to save their lives. The king stumbled on, unopposed, with fleeing citizens crying out and praying to God, 
asking what they had done to deserve such horror. He paid them no mind, but stopped at Trafalgar Square, where he reached the mighty pillar and spoke for the last time. Whatever king is buried here will rest no more. And with whatever ungodly strength had brought him to life, he uprooted Nelson's column, crashing it into pieces on the cobblestones. The great exertion used to uproot the column caused the ancient king to collapse on the ground and rise no more. In the morning, the citizens ventured out to survey the carnage. Reporters canvassed the path of destruction, attempting to find any eyewitnesses. Reporters canvassed the, the path of destruction. When they came to the base of Nelson's column, attempting to find any eyewitnesses, they saw nothing but a pile of dust. When they came to the base of Nelson's column, they saw nothing but a pile of dust. How about it, folks? I tell you what Nelson's uh, column folks, had a coming. I tell you what Nelson's That's column it for this had episode. Coming. You can see some illustrations episode, of Space Pirate O'Malley over on our Instagram You can see some illustrations of Space Pirate O'Malley over on our Instagram When we get the website page. going here in a week or so, you'll be able, able to order prints of those wonderful illustrations done by the supremely talented Annie Vaughn. Go check out her Instagram go check and out go her support Instagram her shop. She's been a wonderful friend of the show and her art is unparalleled. She's been a wonderful friend of the show and her art is unparalleled. At least in this That's it for now. See you on the next one. And if you want to support the show directly, go on over to our Patreon page and become a patron today. Remember, we release our episodes every two weeks, so we'll see you then.